Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Dr. Greg Potter is a British researcher who specializes in circadian biology, sleep, diet, and metabolism. Greg gained attention in the United States and Europe for his research into the importance of biological rhythms in sleep and how they affect people's lives. His work has been featured in the BBC World Service, the Washington Post, Reuters, and other specific scientific journals and news outlets. In addition to being a science writer and sleep consultant, Greg is also an entrepreneur who co-founded Resilient Nutrition in 2020, a company that leverages science to produce foods and supplements geared towards helping people feel and perform better. Greg earned his undergraduate and master's degrees in exercise science from Loughborough University in in England, where he coached a sprinter to four gold medals at the European Championships. He then headed off to the University of Leeds to obtain his PhD. Greg has also worked with groups such as the United States Naval Special Warfare Command on health and performance optimization. Dr. Greg Potter, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Boundless Body Radio. Hey, Casey. Nice to meet you. Nice to be here. Yeah, so nice to have you. I have been deep diving into your research for quite some time now. You recently appeared on an epi- two episodes, actually, of STEM Talk, which is one of my favorite podcasts with Ken Ford. And you did such an amazing job. We were just so honored that you'd be willing to come on our show and talk about some of the things that, got, that, that you know really interest you, including sleep and circadian rhythm. Pleasure. Well, nice to be here. That's great. Before we get into your story, I know that you were involved in, um, you know, a team that was rowing across the Atlantic, which is quite an amazing story. How does one help a team of two people prepare for that voyage? That seems extremely arduous. Well, I won't take any credit for more than I actually contributed. So the two guys that rode the Atlantic, Dave Spellman and Max Thorpe, were already in tip-top shape when I came along and my friend who was sponsoring them asked me to help out with their nutrition and with strategies to help them cope during inevitable sleep loss because they would be for weeks at sea trying to row the Atlantic as fast as possible. And so I really just gave them some guidance raised to their nutrition and some simple things they could do on board to improve their sleep quality, recognizing that they were going to lose some sleep and then also just kept in touch with them along the way. And I'm still in touch with them nowadays too, because since they achieved a very impressive feat, they broke the world record in that particular crossing. They've both gone on to do some really cool things since. Wow, that's amazing. What things are you trying to consider when it comes to nutrition in on that type of a voyage? Quite a few. And many of them relate to practicalities. One is that on that type of boat, you don't have a fridge. The temperature is going to fluctuate a lot. So your ability to take fresh food that will remain palatable and non-toxic is limited. So that automatically whittles down the types of items that you can take with you. Another key problem to address is the fact that those guys would be burning at times over 10,000 calories each day. They're both big men and they're doing so much activity that they're expending energy at extraordinarily high rates. And so given that they have to try and match their calorie intakes to those expenditures and invariably they're not going to do so but the point is that in some ultra endurance events there's some preliminary evidence that people who better match their calorie intakes their energy expenditures tend to perform better 
So trying to consume enough calories each day while minimizing digestive distress is another key one. And then there are a few other factors too. So because they'd be away for several weeks, it's important that they try and maintain their nutritional status. So simple things such as micronutrient supplementation, multivitamin, multimineral, that type of thing can be helpful in those contexts. Recognizing also that because you don't have a fridge and you can't consume lots of fresh foods beyond the first few days, you're likely to not get enough of certain micronutrients and also your needs for certain nutrients are going to be higher because you're doing so much strenuous activity. And then the final one is just that given that the mass of the boat is a determinant of performance in the event, you're trying to reduce the weight of the boat as much as possible. And based on that, more energy-dense items come into their own. And that's why many people favor quite calorie-dense foods, so foods that are very rich in fat as opposed to protein and carbohydrate, for instance, which is a viable strategy in part because it's an ultra-endurance activity. And so the average intensity that the guys row at is relatively low compared to their maximum although for most mere mortals they're still rowing incredibly hard wow that's crazy i was trying to think like you know what would what would some of the staple foods be i was thinking like maybe like pemmican or something like dried meat with like extra beef tallow in it or things with with like plant fats like coconut oil i mean were a lot of those kind of staples so the staple foods were some dehydrated meals to begin and typically they'd have those breakfast lunch and dinner and in almost all types of ultra endurance activities that last many days or even weeks people will tend to gravitate to those in part because comfort matters you're doing something extremely taxing and so having something that's familiar reminds you of home that's delicious can be a huge boon during those dark moments so they would have those and a variety of those for a few different manufacturers. They would supplement those meals with various high-calorie items. So given that fresh fruit is perishable, they tend to go for dried versions of it. And that goes for some other foods too. You mentioned dried meat there, and they did take some jerky and some other dried meat with them too. Then to provide additional calories, nut butters come into their own. And this is actually how a company that I co-founded came about. The company's name is Resilient Nutrition. Because they'd be burning calories at such a high rate, we made nut butters for them, given the fact that nut butters are incredibly easy to consume. They're very energy dense. So the nut butters in our range vary between about 490 calories per 100 grams and over 600 calories per 100 grams. They are also very stable. You don't have to refrigerate them. They're delicious. And one interesting detail also is that whereas with whole nuts, the actual accessible energy is not as high as what you will read on the nutrition label. Famously, there's a study of almonds showing that if you compare the actual bioaccessible energy of ground almonds, so almond nut butter, to whole almonds, the available energy in the nut butter is over 50% higher than it is in the whole almonds. Wow. And then we took nut butters as a base and we made them 
hopefully have performance enhancing effects above and beyond their basic nutrition by adding certain nutraceuticals that can support physical performance and your ability to adapt to stress. Just as some examples of those, they contain added protein, specifically the amino acid leucine too. And leucine is probably the only amino acid that can independently trigger the synthesis of new proteins in skeletal muscle. So given that skeletal muscle protein synthesis is the main determinant of whether you're losing or gaining muscle mass over time, that is a really simple and effective nutrition strategy, particularly if the protein quality of the rest of the food isn't as high as would be ideal. So you can supplement plant proteins with the amino acid leucine and end up with a protein that's more anabolic than it would be without the leucine. And then there are energized versions of those nut butters that contain added caffeine and L-theanine. Caffeine obviously is a stimulant that can improve performance in various types of exercise, endurance exercise, strength of power exercise, intermittent sprint exercise. And L-theanine is often considered a nootropic because it helps people seamlessly switch their attention during tasks. It also helps keep them calm. And in that way, it complements caffeine because caffeine consumed in high quantities can make people quite jittery. And then another version of the products contains added KSM-66 ashwagandha. Ashwagandha is a herb that's been used for millennia in some parts of the world, notoriously India. And it is a so-called adaptogen, meaning that it helps people better cope with stress. When people regularly consume a standardized dose of ashwagandha, such as 600 milligrams of KSM-66 ashwagandha per day, they tend to feel less stressed. And that sensation, of course, corresponds to change in their biology. So you tend to see reductions in morning cortisol levels, for example. Cortisol is a so-called stress hormone that's involved in things like mobilizing energy reserves, boosting alertness, and so on. And ashwagandha also has some interesting effects on physical performance when regularly taken over time. There is preliminary research showing that when people regularly consume it, they might slightly boost their VO2 max, which is one of the primary determinants of performance in many endurance activities. There have also been two studies, one on KSM-66 and one on a different form of ashwagandha, showing that when people take those in conjunction with resistance training, lifting weights, they gain muscle mass and strength faster than when they take a placebo. And then finally, there are some really interesting and potentially positive effects on certain hormones that I haven't mentioned, one of which is testosterone in men. So if you think about that context in which these men are going with very little sleep for extended periods, they're doing enormous volumes of activity, chances are their sex steroids are going to be in the tank quite quickly. And when people regularly take ashwagandha over time, and when men specifically regularly take it over time, they seem to see a boost in testosterone of roughly 15%. And so I think in that type of sustained, stressful activity, ashwagandha is a, a really helpful ingredient. So that's a bit of background to why we developed those products. 
Wow. No, that's super fascinating. When I was competing in road cycling, I was taking adaptogens. I want to say they were cordyceps and, and rhodiola were the primary ones, also found in that area of the world, I believe. And I, it was the same thing. Like You had to take it for a long time before you noticed the effect. But I would I would make selections and breakaways and criteriums and feel like I was nose-breathing when everybody else around me was just like totally suffering. So I do think there's a place for that kind of thing, and I think they're very powerful. It's interesting just to you know discuss nutrition for that specific you know kind of a thing. And I think if you're into nutrition, you're into problem solving and you're into engineering, you have to think about this, you know, quite deep when we're considering these really specific applications and how we can take all those different applications and apply them to really help people succeed. So I'd love to talk a little bit about your journey into health, how you got interested in health and how that eventually led you to your current uh, or more recent research into circadian rhythms and rhythms and sleep. Absolutely. I'll try and keep this brief, at least by my long-winded standards, I became interested in health because I hurt myself when I was 12 playing rugby. I had a back injury and then I started trying to rehab that, learning about different types of exercise. And that coincided also with around the start of adolescence, I became more interested in girls and I wanted to look good for them. So from that initial injury came a broader interest in things such as sports nutrition too. And when I wasn't playing sport or studying at school, I spent a lot of my free time finding out about nutrition and exercise science and some related subjects. However, my interest in circadian biology and sleep came a bit later. I eventually ended up at the university in Loughborough, Loughborough University, studying sport and exercise science for my undergrad and also did a master's in exercise physiology there and did lots of coaching along the way. And it was while I was at Loughborough that I realized how important sleep is. And I therefore started looking at PhD opportunities, focusing on sleep and circadian rhythms and came across one at the University of Leeds. Ended up there for four years with Laura Hardy, Janet Cade and Peter Grant studying the relationships between how we sleep, what we eat, and our metabolic health. And that's a long way of showing that I'm interested in many different components of lifestyle and how they affect how we feel and perform each day. So while my initial interest was in exercise, and nowadays most people seem to know me as a sleep or a circadian biology guy, I'm very interested in all the different factors that can influence our ability to bring our best selves to the world each day. And since my time at Leeds, I left there in 2018, I've been involved in various other projects too. I have worked with a couple of startups doing things such as trying to automate the process of health coaching. I have co-founded this nutrition company we spoke briefly about earlier and I continue to do some coaching work to working with individuals because as you were saying the problem solving process is fascinating and as I'm sure you know too well no one size fits all and so with this type of podcast you're always trying to give people helpful guidance but you always have to add the caveat that on average, this works relatively well in this context, but it, it might not be for you, or you might be a hyper responder and find that this works extraordinarily well for you. 
Yeah, that's right. It's it's equal parts exciting because there is always that engineering component. It's also equally frustrating when we come back with lots of answers saying, I don't know, I'm not sure. We think this, we can't prove that. There's a lot of things that we, that we have good ideas about, but we don't fully know. When somebody goes to the Resilient Nutrition pay, uh, website, excuse me, they can download your ebook for free. That ebook is fantastic. You did an amazing job writing it. And in the beginning, you do a really good job communicating this idea that we have evolved in a certain way for a very, very long time. Our evolution seems to have changed maybe in a little bit more of a, a gradual way about 12,000 years ago when the when the agriculture revolution kind of started in, in, in a few different places on the planet. But even as, as more recent as like 200 years ago, we really have changed a huge amount in the last 200 years with the industrial revolution. And I was just talking to one of my clients this morning, like he had a crappy night's sleep so his nutrition is off charts. So now his weight loss has plateaued. His stress is way up. And you can't you can't seem to like find any direction of causality in any one of those. Was, does the sleep cause the bad eating? Did the bad eating cause cause the bad night of sleep? But but it's all to say, like the discussion that we had is like, look, we evolved in this certain way, but now it's 2022 and we have to be realists with our, our life and lifestyle. And I love the way you explain, like you're just trying to bring out your best self. And so I wonder if we could talk about about circadian rhythms, how we evolved with them, and and hopefully come out of this conversation with some good practical tips that people can be thinking about to to understand how we can make that truth jive with today's reality. <laughs> yeah, of course. Circadian rhythms are just these rhythmic changes in our biology roughly every 24 hours that are driven by our own internal clocks. They're not driven by are cycles of eating and fasting or physical activity they are an output of the circadian system and the reasons that they evolved likely relate to the fact that we live in the presence of this roughly 24 hour light dark cycle and organisms evolved on the planet which rotates about its axis and Obviously, the sun rises at roughly the same time each day and sets at roughly the same time. And to thrive in that type of changing environment, it would have been advantageous to be able to anticipate changes in the niche in which organisms lived back then. So, for example, it would be likely there would be certain other animals that would be active at certain times each day. And so if you as an organism were higher up the food chain than them, it would be helpful to anticipate them being active so that you could go out and get the food that you need in order to sustain your own survival and therefore your ability to pass on your genes. And so what happened over time is that organisms evolved these clocks, which basically give them certain patterns of daily behavior. They're either nocturnal or nighttime active, diurnal or daytime active, as humans largely are or crepuscular, meaning that they're primarily active around dawn and dusk, respectively. And you see this in certain animals, such as deer. Humans have a little bit of that type of behavior, too. We tend to be a little bit more active at those times of day. And interestingly, when you think about those three different categories, there are flurries of activity around dawn and dusk, respectively, when the organisms in these different temporal niches are all active around the same time. So that's likely the reason that we evolved these clocks and the purpose of these biological rhythms or circadian rhythms specifically is to optimize our biology according to time of day. And so you can think about this 
internal clock workers setting a daily timetable of events in different tissues throughout your body. And so as daytime active organisms, our bodies are primed for being physically active and consuming food during the day. And that means that lots of different related biological processes work better at that time. So, for example, your digestive system undergoes a variety of changes 24-hour days such that your ability to absorb nutrients is higher during the daytime. There are 24-hour cycles in the gut microbiota that influence how you respond to foods. There are time-of-day changes in immune function such that our ability to ward off pathogens is higher during the daytime, which makes sense because as we interact with the environment, we will expose ourselves to more pathogens than if we were just sleeping at night and weren't moving around. And there are lots of related metabolic changes too. So for example, core body temperature fluctuates over the course of the day, such that it's typically highest in the late biological afternoon, which for a lot of people is around 5 p.m., And it's at that time of day, therefore, that we're physically strongest and most powerful. And that might have some implications for when we want to exercise, if we want to optimize our performance or be at our best. There are also changes in some key determinants of health, such as insulin sensitivity. And based on this, there's a time of day change in our ability to effectively dispose of the glucose and the carbohydrate that we consume such that it's roughly 17% higher at 8am than it is at 8pm. And again, that's driven by our biological clocks. And then at night time, we're of course suited to resting and fasting. And the sleep period provides an opportunity for our bodies to undergo various different housekeeping functions. For instance, various different metabolic byproducts of wakeful activities tend to accumulate in the brain as we go about our days and then at night it's as if the the plumbing in some parts of the brain opens up allowing the the trash collectors to take out the garbage and clean it up and it's also during sleep that we integrate our experiences with our previous experiences so that we can better understand the world around us, make predictions about the future. And related to that, of course, sleep is essential to the formation of various different types of memories, both declarative, which is knowledge of facts, but also things such as procedural memories, our ability to remember how to do things. Think, for instance, of riding a bike and sleep and a particular stage of sleep, especially important to emotion regulation and interestingly if if we go back to evolution then by comparing how different primates sleep we can understand something about the roles of sleep in humans and what makes us different and if you look at human sleep relative to other primates it's very unusual it's substantially shorter than would be predicted and it also is unusually rich in rapid eye movement sleep, which is that stage of sleep that's particularly important to emotion regulation and also to creativity. And so it could be that some of these changes in sleep architecture have contributed to our ability to distinguish ourselves from other organisms on the planet. So I'll stop there, but that's that's a little bit of the evolutionary background to 
the emergence of circadian rhythms and how they're so helpful. Yeah, that is absolutely fascinating. So many awesome talking points there. Um, if we, you're talking about all these different peripheral clocks. You also talk about like a master clock. Can you tell us the difference between the two? Yeah. So you have this biological clockwork, which is a bit like a network of related clocks in cells throughout your body. It's likely that every one of the billions of cells in your body has its own molecular clock. And we don't need to go into details, but this molecular clock basically comprises these loops of gene expression and then the translation of the products of that expression. And the resultant varying protein levels over the course of the day then influence when other genes are expressed according to the 24-hour cycle, creating these rhythmic cellular changes and lots of different processes in different tissues throughout the body. But the issue is that because there are clocks throughout your body, there needs to be a way of keeping all of them on time with each other. And a key way by which our bodies accomplish this is via the master clock. And it's this master clock in the brain that acts like the conductor in an orchestra and that the conductor helps keep the rest of them on time. The master clock is in a part of the brain, that anterior hypothalamus, and it's called the suprachiasmatic nuclei just because of the location of this clock in the brain. So supra means above, chiasm is cross. So it's above where the optic nerves cross. And it receives information about time of day from the eyes. So there are specialized cells in the eyes, in the lower part of the eye specifically, named intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells or melanopsin-containing cells that contain this unusual photopigment, which absorbs short wavelength light specifically. And so what that means is that overhead light that is rich in short wavelengths, which is basically what daylight is, most strongly affects the activity in these cells and then sends that information back to the master clock in the brain. And this master clock in the brain then uses a variety of different mechanisms to keep these other clocks in time. And all of the clocks in your body outside of the master clock are collectively termed peripheral clocks. So it's a very broad distinction, but that's just the way that scientists have gone about it so far. And the mechanisms by which the master clock signals time of day information include regulation of melatonin synthesis in the brain, so the master clock has a pathway back to the pineal gland, which is where most melatonin is synthesized. The melatonin you can think of as acting as an internal signal of darkness, telling cells throughout your body that it's the biological nighttime and therefore to engage in appropriate activities for that time of day. And melatonin does that by acting on a couple of different types of receptors on those cells. But the master clock also uses some other mechanisms too. So for example, it does produce some of its own secretions that will act on nearby cells, giving them time of day information. It also has various different neural projections to other parts of the brain that are involved in things like sleep weight regulation. And then one of the interesting properties of the master clock is that itself, it's quite resistant to changes in temperature from the outside side world and that's a really important property of circadian clocks because what you see in many biological systems 
is that if you increase the temperature, then you speed up the rates of certain chemical reactions. You see this in things like photosynthesis. But if that was true of circadian rhythms, then if you increase the temperature, then you would speed up those rhythms. And so your clock wouldn't tick at 24 hours anymore. It would become faster and faster. And so the circadian system has to be temperature compensated. And it's the master clock in the brain that gives it this particular phenomenon. And the master clock, therefore, while resistant to temperature outside, can help set clocks elsewhere in the body through temperature because some of these other clocks do respond to body temperature. And so it's this master clock in the brain that provides that daytime rhythm in core body temperature. Your core body temperature fluctuates by nearly one degree Celsius each day such that it's at its lowest typically around two hours before you wake up in the morning and its highest in the late afternoon and that contributes to things such as alertness and, and various different metabolic processes but that's something about these different clocks and i suppose the important points are that the mass clock in the brain is very responsive to your patterns of light exposure and if you want it to function well then it's imperative that you provide it with sufficient meaning enough duration of daylight each day and daylight has a couple of key characteristics. One is that it's very intense. Our eyes don't register, or our eyes register this. However, we're not very good at perceiving light intensity consciously in terms of our visual system, because if you go outside, you might not notice that the intensity of the light outside might be roughly 200 times higher than what it is indoors. However, these cells in the eye that relay information back to the master clock do register that. And so daylight is a much, much stronger time cue and anchoring the timing of your biological clock each day than indoor lighting is, even using something like a light therapy lamp. And <clears throat> that's in part because daylight is very rich in these short wavelengths. And then with respect to the peripheral clocks, what seems to be the case is that some of them are very responsive to our cycles of eating and fasting. And this hasn't been very well demonstrated in humans just yet, but there are plenty of reasons to think that this is true of us too. And so what that means is that if we have clear cycles each day of eating and fasting, so we have regular meal times and we can find our meals at certain times of day and then ensure a sufficient fasting period in which we only consume water outside of that time, then we're telling these peripheral clocks something about the time of day outside, which is helping to keep the whole circadian system in time with each other and thereby support our health. Wow, that's so interesting. Let's start with the the light outside. And I think a lot of people wouldn't realize also, like even on a cloudy day, comparing a cloudy day outside to even a, like a bright office, th th there's a vast difference in those two things. How, how do you recommend that people approach getting more true daylight, true sunlight? Should they start in the morning? Should they just get out as much as possible? Like what are some of your recommendations based on the science? Yeah, that's a good question. So just pick up on what you said about cloudy day, the way that light intensity is measured is using a standardized unit, the lux. One lux is the intensity of light that's emitted by a candle held one meter from the eye. And 
in this room right now, the intensity of the light might be something like 500 lux. Outside on a cloudy day, while the sun is up, the intensity might be something like 10,000 lux. And outside on a clear day at solar noon, it's often over 100,000 lux. So we're talking about enormous differences between the intensity of the light in those different conditions. Now, with respect to recommendations regarding lighting, I think that we, we can get into specifics and we will. However, I'll, I'll try and also keep my answer somewhat simple. And in short, I think people should spend at least one hour outdoors in daylight each day. And they should keep their nights as dark as possible. Around three hours before they go to bed, they should systematically reduce their exposure to light, in particular to overhead light, to bright light to light that's rich in short wavelengths which might appear white or blue or green and instead they should favor lights at eye level or below that have a warmer appearance so think romantic lighting and if anything red light is probably preferable around that time of day so you want this warm white or orangish or reddish light in that pre-sleep period and then obviously while you're in your bedroom trying to sleep, you want to minimize all light exposure. If you do have any light emitting devices, then I think it's best to choose ones that emit red light. So if you have an alarm clock, then you want one with a, a red face, although you shouldn't be watching the clock in bed. We might get to that later. So if I then go into a couple of specifics, with respect to your body's clockwork, more daylight is generally better in terms of many of the so-called non-visual effects of light exposure. And those don't just include the ability of light to reset your clock each day, which matters because your body's clock doesn't intrinsically necessarily have a, a speed of precisely 24 hours. So if you went and lived in a cave in which you had no information about time of day, it was constantly dark, the temperature didn't vary, and you didn't have any food access, you probably find that your clock was on average slightly slower than 24 hours. Mm. The average across people is around 24 hours and 15 minutes. And so what that means is that if we didn't reset it each day, it would drift later over time. Light is the most important thing in resetting the clock. And in general, people who get more daylight each day more closely align their daytime activity patterns with the world around them. But of course, there are trade-offs because with greater sun exposure, particularly in areas where the sun is very strong, comes potentially an increased risk of things like skin cancer, particularly if you burn yourself. So I, I just want to add that because I think it's so easy to see things only through the lens of circadian biology, disregarding the fact that too much light is not going to be good for people's skin. Yeah. It, it can potentially contribute to some things such as some eye conditions to macular degeneration among others. But with that said, I will give a couple more recommendations. One is that if you are a night owl and you want to shift your sleep earlier, maybe you have to wake to an alarm in the morning at 7 a.m., but you can only fall asleep at 1 a.m. and you therefore only have a six-hour sleep opportunity and you're not going to be asleep the entire time. So maybe you're only getting five hours of sleep on a regular basis and you don't feel that's enough for you. 
Shifting your clock earlier is going to help you fall asleep earlier and thereby get more sleep and experience the benefits of doing so. And the way that you would do that is by trying to get outside into daylight as early as possible in your waking day for as long as possible. So, for example, you might set your alarm in the morning, wake up, and then within an hour or so of waking up, get outside into daylight, ideally spend at least an hour outdoors at that time of day. And if you're physically active at that time of day, then you might have some additive effects on your shift in your body's clock timing that the light by itself would would lead to. That's because I haven't mentioned this, but physical activity per se might be a bit of a time key for the skating system, both for those peripheral clocks, but also for the master clock in the brain. So that's a, a simple strategy for night hours. If you can't get outside at that time of day, then you want to turn on the overhead lights as strongly as possible. You might want to use a light therapy lamp. If you do so, then I'd get one that emits at least 10,000 lux. And you probably use that for half an hour to one hour. Keep it within a meter or so of yourself. And then during the daytime, if you're stuck inside, Try and sit by a window because the intensity of light moves in a non-linear fashion as you move away from windows such that there's a really rapid drop off in the intensity of light. So as a night owl, getting more daylight is really important if you're trying to accelerate your clock and sitting by windows is a really simple way of doing so. Otherwise, trying to break up your day with short walks after meals, which is also going to be good for things like how well your body processes various different nutrients in the meals that you consume will be helpful. And then if you are a very early bird, let's say that you're 70 years old and you find yourself wake up at half three in the morning, because what tends to happen is over the course of the lifespan, our body's clocks shift in their timing such that after the end of adolescence, they basically get earlier and earlier until the grave. You want to shift your clock later so that you're on time with the rest of society. And the way that you would do that would be to avoid light at the start of the day Obviously, you don't want to do anything dangerous. You don't want to keep all of the lights off necessarily, walk around in darkness. But again, minimize overhead lighting, much as I described earlier when speaking about how you should change your lighting in the three hours or so before bed. And if you are outside at that time of day, then you might want to use sunglasses. That's going to reduce your exposure to that type of light. If you're indoors, you, you could use them too. There are also these blue blocking glasses, which are amber tinted glasses that selectively filter out some short wavelengths of light which could be helpful some people don't like the way they look but if you don't mind that then i think they're a viable option and then being physically active a bit later in the day so maybe in the period between about four hours before you plan to go to sleep and two hours before you plan to go to sleep doing some activity at that time ideally outdoors in daylight if the sun is up is going to help shift you a little bit later so I think it really depends on your sleep-wake timing, whether you want to change it. But for most people, spending more time in daylight is going to give them a, a really strong time cue each day. And it's also, importantly, going to buffer against any effects of light at night on your alertness and your sleep. Because nowadays, a lot of people focus on the fact that Exposure to blue light in particular, but all types of light in the three hours or so before bed can boost cognitive arousal, can delay the body clock, can therefore delay sleep as well. 
and potentially reduce the depth of sleep at the start of the night. However, if you look at the actual experiments that have shown that, they generally have people stuck inside, exposed to very weak light during the daytime. And in instances in which people are given a really strong daytime time cue, there's been plenty of time outdoors and daylight, those devices aren't going to have nearly as strong effects on your body clock and your sleep when used in the pre-sleep period. So I think spending sufficient time in daylight is often underappreciated by people and it, it really makes you resilient against light at times of day that aren't ideal. Yeah. No, I, those are all such great and practical tips. And I think a lot of people might be listening and thinking like, well, that, that sounds nice, but I have an office job. I am stuck inside. I can't get out. And I found for a lot of people, it's really just looking at your day critically and you will find gaps and opportunities to be able to do things outside. If you like, you can take your lunch outside. You can take calls on your phone. I, I do that all the time. One of my favorite managers would always do, um, walking meetings with me. So rather than sit yeah. in the office, let's go outside let's go walk around and I, I i really strongly feel even you know the, the confrontational feel of sitting in an office when you're facing each other versus being side by side and walking i felt like it helped with problem solving i helped like it felt like we were kind of going along a path together and and, and we got all that outdoor time it was great yeah i think a lot of people have that experience famously Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky used to go for their walks together when they were trying to problem solve. And Kahneman's convinced that that was a key contributor to much of their success. Obviously, he ended up winning the Nobel Prize for his work in economics, but he's really a psychologist. Now, with that said, yeah, I think it's it's actually the case that most people can seamlessly bake a lot more time outdoors into their day just by critically going through their day and it can be a helpful exercise actually just to to list the habitual things that you do each day i know many people are interested in behavior change and habit formation will have people do this and then try to identify the habits that are constructive and the ones that are potentially destructive and you'll probably find that that there's an opportunity for you to increase your morning light in the half hour or so before you go to work maybe you normally have your coffee indoors and now you can take it out on the balcony in the morning it's also worth mentioning that obviously your your body's clock will change in its direction over time and if you're stuck inside out of necessity for five days each week however on two days off each week you could get outdoors in daylight for as much time as you wanted it would be worth doing so because that would probably quite quickly get your clock back on time. And then maybe it will drift a bit during the week again and not have such a, a strong high amplitude rhythm in your activity and your rest. But the weekend or the day off exposure would help you. So if you are stuck inside for whatever reason, I just think make the most of your days off, spend plenty of time outdoors. And just going back to what you were saying about your own experience daylight affects us in so many different ways it can acutely boost alertness it of course affects your mood anybody who has seasonal affected disorder will have experienced this firsthand they'll find that their mood drops off during the short days of winter and they might find that during the long days of summer they actually have a bit of hypomania in which they're really energetic and enthused and bright and bubbly 
And it also affects some aspects of cognition that are important to workplace performance beyond just alertness alone. There have been studies of so-called human-centric lighting in which new buildings are designed in ways that increase the intensity of daylight exposure or increase the intensity of light coming from electric sources and maybe make that light particularly rich in short wavelengths. And when that's compared to a similar office in a similar context, but without such optimal lighting, the people who are in the human-centric environment have much better cognition in various different tasks. So it can it can acutely boost your brain function too beyond any effects on just your body clock alone. Would it be fair to compare all of this to kind of like a pendulum where you really want that pendulum to swing really hard in either direction and getting lots of sunlight in one direction will help you have better sleep in the other direction. And the big problem with a lot of people is, yeah, we're waking up, we're not getting outside, we're getting in our cars, we're driving to work, probably parking in a parking facility, we go in our office. So now we're not getting enough of the daytime, good, big, bright, lights during the day and and to compound that now we're coming home usually in the dark and we're turning on netflix so we're continuing to get that low level kind of blue light for even longer is that what you see as kind of the problem of of modern modern humanity it's it's definitely a key problem and you see this in many different contexts an interesting one is comparing urban environments to non-urban ones on average, people who live in cities sleep a bit later than people who live in the countryside, for example. And of course, there are lots of factors that contribute to that, but insufficient daylight exposure, higher levels of exposure to artificial light at night, being able to order food at any time of day with a few swipes of the phone, uncoupling physical activity from food intake, all of those different factors do contribute. And just to comment on the fact that sleep is later in those urban settings, what you tend to find, of course, is that people who get more daylight exposure on average have earlier sleep-wake timing. And that is because they have these really strong time cues. Because the human body clock is on average a bit longer than 24 hours, when you don't give it strong time cues, it tends to shift later. And so, sure enough, there have been various different studies showing that night owls or or late chronotypes on average have worse health and this is looking at many different aspects of health including brain health cardiometabolic health and so on than early chronotypes do but they also tend to have less healthy behaviors they smoke at slightly higher rates they might be slightly more likely to abuse alcohol they might consume slightly more processed food and snacks so in general, I think that association between late chronotype and worse health is driven by weaker time cues and also the fact that these people have less healthy lifestyles. It's not that they're intrinsically less healthy than the rest of us. And something to add is that when you think about this in an evolutionary context, it's clear that it would have been adaptive for people to have variation in their preferred sleep-wake timing. There's been some fascinating research of pre-industrial people by David Sampson and others showing that if you go into an area where people don't have access to electric lights and you measure their sleep-wake cycles, there's large distribution in when people are awake and when people are asleep. 
And there's this hypothesis that's being put forward, the sentinel hypothesis, which basically posits that the reason underlying that is likely that that would have been adaptive because there was always somebody up who was on guard against potential threats in the environment, whether that was from a rival band of people or from some other animals. And so that variation in, in sleep weight timing is inbuilt to humans. And in some ways it's adaptive. The issue, of course, is just that people who are at far ends of the chronotype spectrum can now face problems because society tries to confine them to being active at certain times each day. And that can compete with sleep, your ability to maintain social relationships, and many other things that strongly affect your health. Interesting. Yeah, I've heard that before, that if you get a group size big enough that would have really compared to groups that we would have adapted with, you know, 100 to 150 people maybe, that you will always have somebody awake. And that could be, like you said, really well adaptive. I think that's absolutely fascinating. You've already mentioned fasting, and I would love to talk to you about meal timing and the things that you've learned about that. I know this is a big area of expertise of yours. And I also really love how you clearly define fasting and time-restricted eating. I think I think that's very, very important because when somebody hears fasting, you don't know exactly what they're thinking. A lot of people already go to like, what do you mean? Like, I'm, I'm going to not eat anything for five days. You need to be really clear about those definitions. I love that you're so deliberate about that. So you can talk, talk to us a little bit about um, the things that you've learned about meal timing and fasting. You love that I'm pedantic. So I do. Honesty. It's great. <laughs> it's great. We love it. I think one issue that's common to many relatively nascent fields in science is that people haven't clearly defined their terms. This is true of fasting and time-restricted eating and so on. There's no consensus as to what time-restricted eating is. And so I've just previously laid out how I make the distinctions between these different things. To me, time-restricted eating is referring to humans time restricted feeding is referring to non-human animals and time restricted eating entails restricting access or intake of all calorie containing items to a period of 12 hours or less each 24 hour day so for example if you consumed your first calories of the day at 10 a.m and your last calories of the day at 6 p.m that would be an eight hour caloric period just nerd speak for what most people call eating window. Intermittent fasting, on the other hand, to me is synonymous with periodic fasting, which is the occasional use of a fast of at least 24 hours. And for something to truly be fasting, I think it should just be a water-only fast. People then refer to modified fasting, and that is usually taking a fast and then adding in small amounts of certain nutrients in an attempt to offset some of the negative effects of fasting while keeping many aspects of fasted physiology intact. So people might consume small amounts of dietary fiber. They might consume certain minerals because they think that adding some sodium and potassium and magnesium is going to help them feel better during extended fasts. Or there are also some of these fasting mimicking approaches, the best known of which is Voltolongo's Prolon. And those are just very low calorie snack packs that people will periodically use in an attempt to reap some of the benefits of fasting, but in a way that's frankly more palatable to a lot of people. 
And <clears throat> with respect to some of the health benefits, I'll focus on time-restricted eating in part because I think time-restricted eating has some huge advantages relative to some other ways by which people try and improve their cardiometabolic health through nutrition by, for example, losing weight. One of them is that people understand it. If you're a doctor and you have 15 minutes with a patient who has obesity and is struggling with various aspects of their health and body image because of that, then trying to explain what a paleo diet is to them might be quite tricky. It might be easier than trying to explain how to implement the DASH diet if they're hypertensive, but you would still rather have more than 15 minutes. If, however, you're trying to explain time-restricted eating to them, it shouldn't be particularly hard. You just say to the person, what I want you to do is restrict your intake of all calorie-containing foods and drinks to an eight to 10 hour window each day. You can choose when that is during the day. And when people get that simple advice, they tend to experience a few different benefits. There was a meta-analysis by Shinji Moon on this a couple of years ago showing that people on average slightly reduce their food intake each day. They lose a small amount of weight. They slightly reduce their blood pressure. They slightly reduce their fasting blood sugar levels. And there might be a few other associated health benefits too. And I think another key advantage is that people can stick to it once they understand what it is. If you look at adherence rates and studies of time-restricted eating, people can usually comply with recommendations around 80% of the time, which is a much higher rate than for lots of other dietary interventions. And then with respect to some of the health benefits, I think that some of them depend on how time-restricted eating is implemented. There's been a flurry of research in the last four years or so on so-called early time-restricted eating. And the way that I distinguish this from time-restricted eating in general is that early time-restricted eating entails consuming your final calories of the day at least five hours before you go to bed. So if you're going to bed at 10 p.m., you would finish your final calories by 5 p.m. at the latest. And when people use early time-restricted eating, I think they're likely to experience some benefits above and beyond what they would get from time-restricted eating a bit later in the day. And that's based on a few different studies. The early ones were largely done by Elizabeth Sutton and her colleagues. They did a fascinating study in which they took adult men who have pre-diabetes and they crossed them over between two conditions. So all of these men went through both an early time-restricted eating condition in which they basically restricted their food intake to a period of six hours, finishing by around 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And then another condition in which they spread out their food intake over 12 hours each day. And in both instances, the diets were basically the same. They actually made small modifications to the diets along the way to ensure that there was no change in weight in either condition. So they're controlling for weight loss. And they showed that even when they control for weight loss, Early time restricted eating carried out for several weeks led to a dramatic reduction in morning blood pressure. So blood pressure dropped by about 10 millimeters of mercury, which is similar to the size of effect that you would get from hypotensive drugs such as ACE inhibitors. They also experienced improved insulin sensitivity, lower, lower measures of oxidative stress. So 
independent of any change in body weight, there are benefits to be had from early time restricted eating. So those have been called into question recently because of a couple of relatively high profile studies, most notably one that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine this year. But to be honest, I think that research was flawed in part because if you look at the two groups, then the group that wasn't the early time restricted eating condition had quite short eating windows at baseline. And so if you're taking somebody who habitually has, say, a 10-hour eating window and you say, oh, I want you to use time-restricted eating and you're going to have this eight-hour eating window, 10 hours to eight hours isn't a very large difference. So you're unlikely to see many effects as a result of that. And they found that the addition of early time-restricted eating to calorie restriction, because the other group just did calorie restriction without the time-restricted eating, didn't have any measurable effects on the outcomes that they looked at, which included things like body weight, waist circumference, blood sugar control, blood lipids, and so on. However, if you look at their results, then numerically, the data was marginally in favor of the time-restricted eating condition still. There was probably a, an issue with the study in that they didn't do their power calculation correctly. And if they'd had a larger sample size, they probably would have found a difference between the groups and how much weight they lost mm. because the time-restricted eating condition did lead to marginally more weight, at least in terms of the numbers alone, as opposed to what was statistically significant. And then some other research around the same time found similar results. But one thing to know with both studies is that in no instance were the results for time-restricted eating worse than the comparator. And so based on all the research done to date, there aren't really any downsides to time-restricted eating. The only ones that there might be, based on the research, mostly relate to practicality. And in the case of early time-restricted eating, of course, dinner is a really important social time for a lot of people. So if you're planning to finish your dinner by 3 p.m., it just might not jive with the rest of your life, especially if you have a family. And in that instance, I think it can make a lot of sense to worry less about the eating window timing and more about how you concentrate your food intake within the eating window that you select. So say, for example, that you decide that you're going to use an eating window between midday and 8 p.m., so an eight-hour eating window, which for a lot of people would finish three hours or so before they go to sleep. And this is quite a common approach. What you might do is you might make your first meal within that window the largest of the meals that you consume. Because in terms of your circadian biology, where you concentrate the center of mass of that food intake during this 24-hour day is probably the thing that matters most. And so by front-loading your food intake, you're aligning when you're eating with when your body is best set to digest and metabolize those foods, even if the eating window itself is maybe a little bit later than it might be in an ideal world. And there have been lots of studies looking at things like changing the relative sizes of breakfast and dinner, showing that among obese adults who are on weight loss diets 
if they have half their calories at breakfast, they lose substantially more weight and more inches off their waist and have greater improvements in their blood sugar and blood lipids than if they have half their calories at dinner. So just simply having a big breakfast and a relatively small dinner can go a long way to reaping many of the benefits of early time restricted eating, in my opinion. Wow. That is so well explained. Fascinating stuff. I can say just anecdotally with the people that I work with, as long as they're not eating, you know, a very high carbohydrate diet, like 400 grams of carbohydrates a day and having big blood sugar swings. Once you kind of get that under control with whole food eating, intermittent fasting or time restricted eating, it's just, it, it seems to work for so many different things in a way that, like you said, it's very easy. There's a very high compliance. Most people can do it. You you can you can do it in a way that you're less nitpicky about exactly what foods you eat, and and you save money. You 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 don't need to eat in the morning. Like like people, it's it's great. You save time. Like on vacation, you don't yeah. need to spend two hours at the breakfast place. It's great. It's interesting that you say you save money because one of those studies that I just mentioned that came out around the same time as the paper in the New England Journal of Medicine didn't find differences in the outcomes that they looked at when they were looking at cardiometabolic health. But they did find that early time restricted eating improved diet quality. So they looked at this healthy eating index that's used in various studies. And they found that calorie restriction alone didn't lead to meaningful changes in that, but time restricted eating plus calorie restriction did. And of course, one of the reasons for that is that we tend to consume different items at different times of day. And not many of us have alcohol at the start of the day and not many of us have cereal at the end of the day. And so based on that, I think early time restricted eating is likely to have some of its magic by improving diet quality. And the reason that I brought this up is that you, you were talking about saving money. One of the things that they found in that study was that, or one of the things they found in another study that looked at the effects of time restricted eating on the composition of food that people were consuming found that time restricted eating reduced food waste food waste is a huge problem so much food is thrown away and if time restricted eating can reduce food waste by even 10 percent, then I, I think that's a that's a really big positive that isn't the kind of thing that is on most people's radar but is definitely an advantage yeah, I love that. Before we let you go, uh, do you want to ask you a question about creatine? We know that you are what I would consider to be an expert on creatine, and this supplement just keeps popping up everywhere with so many amazing and wonderful benefits, super well-tested. Um, can you tell us a little bit about creatine and what some of the latest research is around it and, and how much people should be taking? Yeah, creatine I always describe as the gift that keeps on giving because it's been around a long time. Right. People were using it in the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. I think the example that people always point to is that Lympha Christie was taking it. Whether he was taking anything else, I don't know. <laughs> but, <laughs> creatine is most popular among strength and power enthusiasts, people who are trying to be bigger and stronger. And that's in part because when you take creatine on a regular basis, you boost your muscles' phosphocreatine stores. And these are turned over quickly during brief high intensity exercise and by boosting those stores you can better support energy provision during things such as running the 100 meters or doing a set of 10 in the back squat whatever it might be 
creatine also has some effects that aid muscle growth independently. So it can stimulate certain muscle growth pathways. It will also increase the hydration states of muscle cells. And that might have some other benefits in, for example, exercise in the heat. But while a lot of people are focused on those benefits of creatine, more recently, there's been a substantial amount of research into some of the effects of creatine in different body tissues, including the brain. And based on this research, people are now interested in supplementing creatine in a variety of different disorders, everything from neurodegenerative disorders. To be honest, the evidence in favor of that right now isn't hugely strong, but it's another instance in which I don't really see a downside to using creatine for the most part. People are interested in using creatine for traumatic brain injury, things like sports-related concussions, in various different metabolic health problems. So, for example, there's some evidence that creatine can help with blood sugar regulation. If you think about trying to improve your blood sugar control and having more skeletal muscle is almost always a good thing because skeletal muscle is your largest glucose-sensitive sink in which to pour the glucose that you consume and if creatine can help in that process then it's bound to be a good thing and then if you think about the fact that we have an aging population as people get older they tend to lose muscle sarcopenia and therefore lose their ability to produce force and produce force quickly dynopenia and creatine can potentially help counter those age-related changes in musculoskeletal function but with respect to the brain specifically, one reason that I personally find creatine fascinating is just that it also helps to help, it seems to help people better cope with sleep disruption. This hasn't been well studied yet, but creatine boosts phosphocreatine stores in the brain as well. It does so substantially in some non human animals. So in rodents, it can probably boost brain phosphocreatine stores something like 30%, whereas in humans, maybe it boosts brain phosphocreatine stores more like 10% or so, although there might be some ways of increasing stores further. But by doing so, creatine helps counter the accumulation of some sleep-promoting chemicals in the brain during the day. So while you're active each day, while you're awake, your brain needs energy. And in the process of expending energy, you see an accumulation in some chemicals, including adenosine and adenosine triphosphate, ATP, which people describe as the energy currency of your cells, in the spaces between the cells in your brain. And I won't go into the details, but basically as those accumulate during the day, there's an increase in pressure to sleep. And that pressure can ultimately cause a kind of local sleep in certain brain circuits that are heavily used during the day. People think of sleep as being this monolithic state in which the whole brain is asleep all at once, but actually your brain can have regional sleep. And what happens is that sleep can start in certain areas and then spread out into other areas, into cortical columns. And so what creatine might do is reduce the accumulation of adenosine and ATP in those spaces between the cells in your brain and therefore reduce that pressure to sleep. And it might be helpful to understand that 
caffeine also works in some related ways. So whereas creatine helps reduce the accumulation of those sleep-promoting chemicals, caffeine blocks the interaction of those chemicals with their receptors in the brain. And so with all of that said, what we know so far is that if you add creatine to the chow of rats for several weeks, then you boost brain phosphocreatine stores, you reduce that sleep pressure, the animals sleep substantially less, they have less deep sleep, they also have less rebound sleep after sleep deprivation. If I deprived you of sleep tonight, Casey, I wouldn't do that, don't worry. Thank you. And then, and then the following evening, we looked at your sleep. You would sleep more than you would have done had you not been deprived of sleep. That's rebound sleep. After creating intake, you don't see such big rebound sleep. And so in some ways, after creating supplementation, sleep looks a bit like sleep looks in genetically short sleepers. They have a very similar sleep phenotype. And based on this, assuming that those results carry over to humans, and I understand that there's a study that's been done that has found this, albeit to a lesser extent than what's present in rats, it might be a fantastic supplement to take when you know that you're not going to be getting enough shut-eye. Because we all go through periods in which we're burning the candle for whatever reason. Maybe you just had your first child and your sleep is constantly being fragmented by nocturnal crying and your partner breastfeeding and so on. And if that's the case, then I think supplementing with creatine is, is a really smart idea, especially given its other health benefits. There is work looking at the effects of creatine supplementation on performance following sleep deprivation, showing some positive effects. This has been shown for some physical tasks. So one of these is a study of professional rugby players that looked at how accurately they passed the ball after sleep loss, finding that creatine helped maintain their performance when they were short on sleep. There's some work looking at some aspects of cognition that are relevant to workplace performance, finding that those are better preserved after sleep deprivation among people who take creatine monohydrate. And so I think based on all of that, if you know that you're going through a period of sleep loss and you want to support your body as well as you can, it might make sense to take a, a moderate to high dose of creatine each day around that time. If you are going by the studies that have been done so far, then you might go through a loading phase prior to that period of sleep loss in which you would take five grams of creatine four times a day, so 20 grams per day in total. The reason that you divide the dose in that way is just that creatine has quite a strong osmotic effect. It tends to pull water towards it. And if you consume too much at once, obviously that can influence your digestion, leading to some discomfort. And then after five to seven days of that, you'll probably fully saturate your muscles phosphocreatine stores. We don't know as much about the degree to which you'll saturate your brain's phosphocreatine stores, but that's the type of loading protocol that's been used in these particular studies. If you're just using creatine on a regular basis, then lots of different dosing protocols can work. You don't have to go through that loading phase. You could just take a fixed dose each day. We don't really know what the dosing schedule 
that's ideal is. It might vary a bit between people, but to be honest, there don't seem to be big differences between studies using different dosing protocols. And I think that if somebody's taking roughly five grams of creatine per day, they're going to get all of those benefits. Personally, I take it each morning with breakfast because carbohydrate and protein can aid creatine uptake. And I think that's a, a practical way to go for most people. And then in terms of the creatine itself, you want to get creatine monohydrate. A lot of people will get pure creatine, which is just a micronized form of creatine on the assumption that its purity is better than a lot of creatines that are on the market. That's sometimes true. There are also non-creopure creatine monohydrates that are high quality too. And my impression is that most of the creatines on the market is actually creatine monohydrate and what you want it to be. Fortunately, it's really inexpensive. There aren't really any contraindications to taking it. Maybe some people who have some kidney problems, maybe some inborn, some genetic disorders of dysfunctional creatine metabolism which are very rare, obviously. One that I think is interesting that, that would give me pause is people who experience hypomania. So if you have bipolar disorder and you're going through a phase in which you, you're just full of energy and you can barely sleep, maybe creatine would help you better cope during that phase. But I also wonder if it could exacerbate it because one of the interesting applications of creatine is that it does seem to boost mood a little bit too there have been a couple of studies looking at creatine supplementation and treatment resistant depression women who haven't responded to conventional antidepressant medications things like ssris showing that creatine monohydrate supplementation can help in those instances if somebody's mood is already through the roof and they're full of beans. I just wonder whether creatine could exacerbate that. There's not really evidence showing that. If anything, the evidence so far suggests that creatine can actually be helpful in bipolar, but that, that does make me think twice about supplementing creatine. So that was a, a whistle-stop tour of some of the reasons creatine is so interesting, but we barely scratched the surface. Wow, that is absolutely amazing. That's such great information. That's going to come in handy in a few months when the World Cup is on and I'm watching TV way too late. It'll come in handy another few months after that when Netflix drops the next series of Formula One, <laughs> which I'm absolutely hooked on, and they drop 10 episodes of Formula One. I'm going to watch them one by one by one. It's so good. That, that was such great information and such a great explanation. We really appreciate this discussion with you. There's so many different we could have taken with this and you gave us a lot of really practical tips and tricks on how to navigate this stuff so dr greg potter where do you want people to go to find you and connect with you and your work my website is gregpotterphd.com very self-indulgent but gregpotter.com was taken and therefore my social media handles are also at gregpotterphd i'm on instagram where i post occasionally i am now on tiktok which nice which 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 feels ridiculous, <laughs> and, and I think I've got about six followers, which is very exciting. Very proud of that. Very good. But but on TikTok, I've just been uploading some videos with some sleep tips, and if you're looking for more information about sleep, recognizing that we didn't get to that today, then you might find some of those helpful. 
That's great. You know, we we make fun of it a little bit, and you know, it's social media. It's kind of a pain, but it gives people sound bites that can really help them. So it's cool that you're doing that and branching out, and and that is going to help more people. Um, I might not be your seventh follower, but I'm sure that will grow over time, and you'll be able to get out this really good information for people. So thank you, Dr. Greg Potter, so very much for everything that you've done in your life, and thank you for sharing this information with us today. We really appreciate you. A pleasure. Thank you, Casey. Absolutely. It was an honor. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to and supporting Boundless Body Radio. It has been such a joy to go on this journey now that it's been two years of doing these episodes and all the amazing conversations that we've had with thought leaders and to be able to share this message around the world with literally hundreds of thousands of people has been so amazing. If you haven't already, please go over to Apple, leave us a rating and review as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and touch more lives of people out there. I am so excited to announce that we are launching the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. This is something that I have been working really hard at for a very long time and something I am very proud of. Now that we have done over 300 episodes, our content can be a little bit overwhelming if you really want to learn about one particular topic and really zero in on that topic. So that is exactly what I have done. I have gone through all of our episodes, taken the very best clips all about one particular topic and put them into long-form very informative and concise episodes called the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. That can be found on our brand new Patreon page, which I'm really excited to announce as we have all kinds of different offers there and different tiers. We're including early releases of our show, Boundless Body Radio. We typically keep about 15 to 20 episodes scheduled at any given time. So we have options there where you can have early access to those. We are also offering group and one-on-one coaching and also access to these premium podcast episodes, the Balanced Body Radio Premium Podcast. We have three that are launching right now, and I will be making a new one every other week. And we believe that we are providing these for a very, very high value. So please check us out on Patreon, check the link in the notes to be able to get there. And thank you as always for listening to Boundless Body Radio.